Digital laut. This is the Digital laut podcast exploring seminal readings on digitization. My name is Christoph Engemann and we are coming to you from the Bauhaus University Weimar. Each episode of Digital Loud features a guest. This guest introduces a text or book they consider essential for understanding the ongoing digitization of societies and cultures. Our aim is to build a resource for students, scholars and anybody with an interest in the theory and praxis of digitization. We do this as a podcast for two reasons. Firstly and frankly, we can't do a book. In the current intellectual property rights milieu, it is impossible to collect and edit a set of seminal texts on digitization. The rights for the texts are either unavailable or prohibitively expensive. Secondly, digitization has given the spoken word a new value and accessibility. Today's texts are increasingly oral and is only apt to discuss the question of a canon of digitization in a spoken format. We will link to the texts where available in our show notes, and if you have questions or suggestions for DigitalOut, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us. And now, without further ado, to today's episode of DigitalOut, Reading the Digital. I'm very happy today to have Alexander Galloway from the New York University here with us, who currently spends a semester in Berlin at the American Academy, where he recently received the Berlin Prize. Alexander Galloway is certainly one of the most prophetic authors when it comes to thinking and theorizing digitization. His book, uh, Protocol, How Control Exists After Decentralization from 2004, probably already is a canonical book. Um, and since then, he has written by my last count at least five other books, some of them co-authored with uh, Eugene Thacker and Mackenzie Walk. And he is also a blogger and a frequent speaker at conferences. And I urge our listeners to uh, go to his website, culture and communication slash Galloway. Is that your website, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it began as a kind of departmental site. You have yeah. a folder there and that folder is rich and deep and definitely worth reading. So uh, welcome, Alexander Galloway. Um, please uh, let us know what text did you bring. The text I selected is uh, a short text. It's only six pages long, and it's from 1990. And it's uh, a short text by the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze. Um, and this is a text that he wrote about what he um, called control societies or societies of control. And he wrote this short text, and then later it was bundled into the end of, of a book of his. And so it gained the name, The Postscript, The Postscript on Control Society. So that's the text that I'm proposing as essential reading for digitization. What is the problem this text brings uh, to the reader? The text poses a question, I would say, about history and also about technology. And It's an unusual text because from one perspective, it doesn't actually really talk a lot about computers. And I think we have to be clear, Deleuze is often mentioned in the context of new media, computation, virtual reality, things like that. But he wasn't really, in my um, reading of him, he wasn't really a theorist of the digital. But he does, in the postscript on control societies, He does talk about computers, and he does put them in a kind of a historical arc 
And so in a passage I particularly like, he says, it's easy to set up a correspondence between any society and some kind of machine. The old sovereign societies worked with simple machines, levers, pulleys, clocks. But recent disciplinary societies were equipped with thermodynamic machines. And then third kind of historical era, control societies operate with a third generation of machines with information technology and computers. So this to me is is kind of the essential um, nub of the text that he's he's laying out this historical argument and then trying to understand how technology changes in these different historical periods. And um, could you elaborate on that a little bit further, how um, Deleuze then develops this argument that uh, we are in a new configuration where we have some sort of um, relationship between a new machinic form and uh, a new form of Uh, society or, or social order? Yeah, there's a new, almost a new vocabulary, too, that we get in the text. He talks about surfing, which he also referred to a few times in, in some of his other writings. Um, I can only guess that he was referring to something like channel surfing on television, right? Because he wrote this before the advent of what we would later call web surfing. So he has this kind of like shift in vocabulary. He also meant literally surfing, surfing, you know, on waves. And Deleuze was obsessed with waves and folds and kind of complicated curvilinear shapes like that. So he has this new vocabulary. And it's a vocabulary, I think, that helps us think about social organization after, let's say, I don't know, the 1970s and the kind of transformations that took place after the 1970s, in particular, the, the rise of so-called um, network society or network-centric society within which the computer has a very important role to play. So the, the, the question of the network, it seems to inform the text, but it's not really present or mentioned in there. Do you think that Deleuze had a um, relatively clear idea about networks, what they are and, and how they constituted? He did. He, I think he had a, a strong intuition. And the evidence for that is the... Um, Or, or one of the places we could cite for that is the first section of a book that he co-wrote with um, Felix Guattari called A Thousand Plateaus. And, and the beginning of this book um, has a very famous section where they talk about the rhizome. You know, the rhizome is a word that they just borrowed from plants and from botany. It's a very common word. Um, a lot of grasses and, and some kinds of flowers and vegetables are rhizomes. And rhizomes are simply plants um, that propagate sort of horizontally. They propagate through asexual reproduction rather than kind of sexual or bilateral reproduction. And so Deleuze and Guattari were sort of captured by this new structure that didn't seem to need, you know, It didn't seem to need a cogito. It didn't need seem to need a, a sovereign or a king or a, a patriarch or, or a centralized power. It could sort of propagate horizontally. You know, it was alive. It had a kind of vitality to it. And so I think that there's this sort of intuition they, they, they had that Deleuze was really trying to seek out in various places around how to have structures 
that are kind of new and interesting and then don't lapse back to the old forms of hierarchy. With the idea of the rhizome, there is also a kind of like a hope of subversion, mm -hmm. the possibility of not only a different, but for the lack of a better word, better organization or better form of relating, right? And this text um, seems to be f quite pessimistic. I agree. This text was written in 1990 and... We should remember this was at the very end of Deleuze's life. He died in 1995. And I'll also note just kind of on a stylistic point, the text is very different from a lot of Deleuze. It reads differently. It has a different feeling to it. It has a different kind of shape. Um, it's explicitly social and political. You know, Deleuze was obsessed with political questions, but he didn't often write in the form of a manifesto. And this text really feels like a manifesto. Sometimes I even sort of jokingly refer to it as the manifesto on control societies. Um, but you're absolutely right. This is a, a philosopher who's looking at the world around him, and he doesn't think that things are necessarily getting better, right? He uses phrases like the harshest confinement, He even mentions what he calls um, a new monster. So information society is a kind of new monster. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's a kind of skepticism, a kind of concern, a kind of political uh, drive. And he was able to identify all of the flaws that might be available, right? So he says, um, you know, he says that these new control societies uh, are susceptible to certain kinds of you know, that, that, that they do have flaws that can be exploited. He sort of suggested that there's a kind of passive danger and there's an active danger. And he says, and these are, these are dangers that might affect or, or influence or threaten the control society. So he says the passive danger is noise, right? So noise is a kind of form of, gosh, a kind of chaotic form. It has a kind of irrationality to it. And Deleuze really understood that if you have a, if you have a structured rational system, noise and randomness is incredibly threatening to that. And, and then the second part of the thought, he says, if the passive danger is noise, he says, um, the active danger is piracy and viral contamination. And I particularly like this because he was, he really understood even in 1990, um, and we could say perhaps anticipated a lot of the kind of net politics that would come out in the next 10 or 20 years, things like file sharing, right, questions of piracy around the ease in which digital objects can be transferred through networks, or with this notion of viral contamination, I think he also kind of anticipated a new, a new phase where whether that's biological viruses and when we have new forms of epidemics, or, or simply the phenomena of something going viral, right? Like the viral um, contagion, um, the contagious quality of, of digital media as well. With the politics of, of the digital you mentioned, there is one element what I think is missing in this text, and that is statehood. And we have the current situation where we really see the geopolitics of the internet and the question um, if we actually going to have an internet long term or some kind of balkanization or as the New York Times recently wrote, three 
different forms of the internet. So an autocratic form, that would be Russia, China, uh, be the leader there, perhaps Iran and other countries. Uh, we have a very liberal US bloc and probably some form of a regulated European bloc. And a lot of the discussion going on in the recent years is basically the geopolitical exploitation of these forms of you know, viral contagion, you know, through things like fake news, memes, in all kinds of ways that, that influence um, uh, basically how people act and participate in, in the public sphere, for, the, for lack of a better word. So that is something that is kind of missing in what he's doing, even though he has a clear picture of the dynamics that are at stake with these kinds of things. Is there anything else that you think that is missing or where he went at something, but one would would have liked that he spent a couple more pages than the seven pages we have? You know, maybe in, in, even just to be provocative, sometimes I say that uh, Deleuze is an analog philosopher and that he basically never had a digital thought. I'm exaggerating, of course, but I think the point is really clear that he was rooted in and obsessed with forms, relations, modes of mediation, modes of representation that really fall under a heading of, of the analogical. So we, we could talk more about that. Your, your core point is, is really interesting. And I'm reminded of um, the lovely phrase that um, Michel Foucault put forward when he wrote um, a short text at the beginning of Deleuze and Guattari's book, Anti-Oedipus. And he said, this book, Anti-Oedipus, is this kind of marvel. It's this fantastic text. And it is, as Foucault said, an introduction to the non-fascist life. So there's this expectation that somewhere in these texts is a kind of key that, that you can use to unlock this notion of the non-fascist life. And so I was reminded of that um, from your question. Um, and I've spent a lot of time myself thinking about you know, where did the internet come from? How did the internet get built? What are some of the principles? What are some of the kind of virtues and philosophical principles that were embedded in these network forms? And so in the, in the early decades, there was a common story. And the common story was essentially that in the past, we've had proprietary and centralized power. And that could be in the hands of the state, as you suggested just now, could also be in the hands of um, the commercial sector, right? So big business or um, the state. And, and the notion is that, is that we have to move away from these proprietary systems and we have to move toward open, flexible systems that sometimes come under the heading of protocol or protocological systems. So for a long time, I was sort of obsessed with this dynamic. Um, you know, what does it mean to move from a proprietary kind of, you know, property-based notion where you have companies that own things and then you buy, you know, an object from them or you rent something from them to open source, you know, Most of the protocols, if not all of the early protocols for the internet, were essentially unowned. They were all developed through a lot of volunteer labor. That, that's a, that story is all well and good, and I think there's a lot of debate that we could have around that. But one thing I noticed is that that all changed. 
that all changed. Sort of, I don't know exactly when we could date it. Maybe 2004, 2005. Maybe it, maybe it really changed with the crisis of 2008. But there's something that changed after the new millennium, where you saw a kind of reversal of that historical trend. So instead of things moving from from kind of proprietary systems to open systems, you saw a kind of a kind of reversal. And I think you're you're exactly right. The internet that we have today is really it's a very classical space in many ways. It's a space where you have centralized hierarchical powerful organizations that exert control over what is essentially a, a network infrastructure. So it's an interesting kind of um, inversion, you know, historical inversion. Without following up too much on that. But I think uh, that's it's an interesting observation. It's probably right around the turn of the millennium that all the hope that open source still carried with it sort of evaporated where um, open source became the basis for what we now call platforms. And Google was probably the first actor that did that. And they showed that you can build a competitive company using this kind of software, and it allows you a competitive advantage that is cheap hardware. And I think that's what uh, is an important part of platforms, um, that the reliability issues of cheap hardware can be abstracted away with software, and that's what uh, Linux helped. And I think contemporary regimes, economic and political ones, are built on free software. And that's even another way to kind of see... Deleuze's analysis. I mean, there's if, if you go back a few decades and say, you know, what's the cutting edge of AI research? Well, it's probably going to be a big, big, big supercomputer somewhere at a university trying to, you know, crank through um, decisions as fast as possible, right? So it's quite literally a kind of much more centralized model. Fast forward, and the, the architecture of it is completely different. As you say, you're more likely to see you know these kind of these kind of massively parallel mm -hmm. systems where you'd have you know dozens and dozens of Linux machines that are that are all relatively small, mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive, but they're all wired up in parallel, mm -hmm. and and um, and so it's it's a very different configuration, mm -hmm. um, and parallel systems are incredibly efficient and powerful if you if you if you set it up correctly. So uh, open source software became an essential element of what Deleuze calls the control societies. Absolutely. Because uh, it, it, it sort of connects and makes uh, programmers part of these dynamics to an extent that were impossible before. You know, think, think about an older model, maybe, you know, a, a century old model around uh, repression, right? How do you control people? Well, you control them through discipline, through repression. What Deleuze understood is that At some point in the 20th century, that really changed. You know, discipline didn't go away, repression didn't go away, but there was a, a new form of organization that didn't really rely on repression. It actually relied on expression, which is a word that Deleuze uses a lot, right? It, it allows people, it gives people mobility. He gives a, a great metaphor um, at a certain point where he says, think about the freeway system, right? A freeway is, is not there to, to stop you, right? A freeway is there to let you drive. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to be very disciplined. You have to um, follow certain laws. And if you break them, you know, you'll either crash or you might, you know, get a ticket or something. But the point is, is that there's a, a, a form of organization that's not based in walls and blockades and 
repression and discipline, but is in fact based in openness, mobility, expression, and in many ways based in a whole series of virtues that really do come out of a kind of liberal democratic tradition. Let's see where this text leads to. Is there anything sort of like in your own thought that you could attribute to reading this text? Is there, you know, something that you actually probably remember when, when, when that happened? And following up on that, um, what is the next text one should read after this one? Well, you know, I, a second ago I said I, that I thought Deleuze was an analog philosopher. And by that I, I meant, you know, he's really obsessed with, you know, an analog mode of existence. And by that I mean a mode of existence that, that really works through continuous variations in intensity. Well, as opposed to a, a mode of existence that focuses on language, code, structure, some sort of symbolic order or symbolic system. And Deleuze was really, he just had no interest in any of those things. He thought they were stupid. He thought they they instilled this kind of silly structure in your psyche. And, and so he really was focused on things like sensation, on uh, perception, on uh, what we call affect, right? So a sense of kind of feeling or sensation in the body that isn't filtered through the cogito or the, or the, or the, or the brain directly. He was obsessed with, with aesthetics. He was obsessed with, with ethics. You know, I love this text and I think it has a lot to say about digital media, but in a certain sense, um, you know, Deleuze wasn't an expert in the digital. And so we don't really get a complete theory of the digital here. And so I would say maybe the place to go next would be to try to return to, and I hate to say it, um, almost a kind of mathematical definition of the digital because the digital is fundamentally a kind of a mathematical construct and, um, and return to some of these core uh, mathematical questions because I think that's, that's really the key to unlock what the digital is. Uh, it's maybe not the key to unlock what people are, right? People use computers in complex ways. And so it's maybe not the best way if you're focused on humans or human uses. But if you're really interested in the digital as a mode of representation, then I think we probably have to go somewhere else. And can you say where? Uh, I'm sort of maybe a contrarian here, but I think the digital is uh, is just quite simply a mode of representation. And since representation is as old as time, it would stand to reason that the digital is also as, as old as time. And I think that's true. So from the very first philosophy, even perhaps from the very first art, we can see examples of digitality. Mm -hmm. So I mean that quite seriously, that we, we could go back to Euclid. Um, Euclid is, is remembered as a uh, someone who is interested in geometry. But of course, Euclid's Elements is a comprehensive treatise. It is an omnibus text that covers essentially the cutting edge, complete technical knowledge for mathematics at the time. So he talks about geometry, but he also talks about what we could call the classic um, digital sciences, um, the most important being arithmetic. So he gives a definition of number. Um, he even uh, gives, I think, what is probably the essential definition of the digital through a com concept of ratio, mm -hmm. uh, what the Greeks uh, referred to as logos, ratio as logos. And then he also gives a very specific definition of uh, the analog, 
which which I find interesting. And then and then the most tantalizing of all, he gives a definition of what's called the irrational. The irrational numbers specifically, but I think we could maybe extrapolate more generally to the concept of the irrational. And so if we have the digital, I think also there are other options. We can investigate into an analogical condition and also into an irrational condition. And those three things I don't think are the same. If we go back to the text and, and how to approach it, like on a very basic level, is there something that listeners should know if they've never heard of this text or even probably never heard of Deleuze, how to read this? You know, One of the reasons why I selected it is that I don't think you need to have a sophisticated knowledge of Deleuze. I don't think he uses particularly esoteric philosophical jargon. So in many ways, it's a very accessible text, which I really like. It's sort of filled with um, vivid language. He talks about sieves and he talks about surfing and he talks about all sorts of machines. And it's a very it's a very kind of engaging text. Um, I would say that the basic thing that everyone should understand in reading it, which he lays out in the opening pages, are these three historical phases. And so these three terms, I think, are really crucial in understanding the text. The first word is uh, sovereign. The second word is um, disciplinary. And then the third is control. So what are these three? Well, sovereign societies are really the kind of um, Think of this as a kind of traditional mode of organizing society, um, organizing society around a sovereign. So that quite literally could be a monarch. You could think of the family, traditional nuclear family as a kind of sovereign structure, whether that's a patriarchal model or even just the dominance of the parents, right? The parents in a relationship of care, but also of power over the children, so there's a sense of verticality. There's a sense of hierarchy. Um, so the second term is discipline, disciplinary. And here, here's where he's really getting a lot from, from Foucault. Um, Foucault was obsessed with um, this kind of high modern period when, in fact, a lot of the older, very kind of classical structures were, were changing. And you start to see the emergence of institutions, um, the institutions of modern life. So this could be the, uh, the insane asylum. This could be the modern prison. Um, this could be the school. There's a variety of different kind of institutions of modern life. And what Foucault said and what Deleuze is sort of implicitly endorsing is that these institutions really operate through a completely different mode of organization. They operate through a kind of disciplinary mode where the people in these institutions sort of internalize all of the codes and expectations. And you might not have somebody kind of lording over you and, and whipping you or forcing you to compelling you to do something. You might have that discipline so completely internalized that you, you kind of enact that behavior yourself. So these are the kind of the great modern institutions, as I said, and perhaps this phase extends into the 20th century. And then the third is control, control societies. And I should say the word control sort of has a slightly different valence in French than it does um, in English. So I think what Deleuze was getting at is really the notion of something like passport control, right? Being controlled, meaning show me your passport. So it's really that moment when you pass through a checkpoint 
when you have to go through a turnstile or through a threshold. And so it's these moments of flow that are that are modulated and checked and you know, people hear the word control and they think, oh, mind control or, you know, state control or something like that. And, and that's maybe in the background, but it's really a, a form of control based on openness, connectivity. Um, yeah. As for the sort of stumbling blocks or irritations in that text, was there anything that like on, on first reading or when working with this text uh, with students um, that you noticed uh, provides difficulties or any kind of like, you know, unevenness. It's not particularly um, programmatic. It's not a manifesto in, this, in the sense that he says, here are our 10 demands or something like that. So I don't know if this is a deficiency or maybe this is um, something that's good about the text, but it's really, I think, a kind of um, a moment of creative writing where he's trying to kind of lay out this new system um, that, frankly, you know, he, he didn't probably know a lot about. I mean, he wasn't um, as far as I can tell, you know, particularly technically savvy. You know, France did have a teletext system called Minitel that predates the web. And so, you know, it's possible that he was kind of responding to that system in some way. But if, if there's if there's a weakness to it, I would say some, that it's, it's short, you know, it's schematic. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have, a, it's not a, a kind of um, deep philosophical treatise. And so that might be a weakness that's also really an invitation mm -hmm. to either read more Deleuze or to use this as a way to move on to, to other texts. Yeah, I always felt that I want more. After reading this text, which I think, even though it's 30 years old, it's a very lucid description um, of certain dynamics that we see in play. Um, but one wishes to get a little you know, deeper into into the matter. And that Deleuze didn't deliver. You know, as you said, it was uh, the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, this always felt like a beginning in a way, mm -hmm. this text. You know, there could be something, mm -hmm. especially since he talks so vividly about capitalism. It really feels like he's, he's, he's trying to say something about capitalism and how it mutates. You know, Deleuze, of course, was a political mind at a very low level. He's not writing about um, political topics on every page, or maybe he's doing it in a way that's really unexpected. Uh, people who, who were tracking Deleuze at this time know that at the end of his life, it was reported that he was working on a book on Marx, which he wanted to title The Grandeur of Marx, The Greatness of Marx. So I, I don't know if this is apocryphal. I don't, maybe there are, you know, fragments locked away in an archive somewhere. Um, but it is true. And, and in an interview that he um, did right around the time when he wrote the postscript on control societies, I, I, I'm just paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but he says essentially that the postscript is a thoroughly Marxist text, mm -hmm. which is surprising. The French post-war period is very much a Marxist period. If you read philosophy, you know, you have Louis Althusser, you have people who are working explicitly in a Marxist tradition, even people who were kept Marxism kind of at bay, people like Michel Foucault are, are nevertheless thoroughly influenced by that tradition. And so to hear Deleuze make that confession, I think is, is really interesting. So maybe what that tells us is that this short little text, the ir irony of this text is that it's maybe one of the most popular Deleuze texts. It might even be the most, the single most commonly read text by Deleuze today, which is saying a lot because Deleuze is an incredibly influential and popular figure. And it always struck me as ironic that um, 
perhaps this short little six-page text might become kind of the most iconic, uh, influential text by Deleuze, even though it's very, very different from everything else he wrote. So maybe this text is a kind of uh, doorway that will allow people to go back and read other things. I think this is what you were kind of getting at. And I would say where to go next, I'll give two suggestions. One is maybe obvious and one is less obvious. The first suggestion, the obvious one, is if you think you're going to be stranded on a desert island, bring a book called A Thousand Plateaus. It's a very long book. It's a very sophisticated book. It's an incredibly creative book. It's a book that travels all around the world, travels all through time, and not back to the ancient Greeks. I mean, literally all, all through time to a kind of primitive prehistory all the way up to the present. Um, so I would suggest that it's a book that covers pretty much every topic under the sun from art uh, to politics to psychoanalysis and Freud to warfare to metallurgy <laughs> to romantic music. There's a lot in that book. The other recommendation I would give um, – Whenever someone says, what's the first book by Deleuze, this is always what I recommend because you don't have to know anything about Deleuze. You don't have to know anything about philosophy and you can still enjoy this book, which is this book on the painter Francis Bacon, which he wrote in the 1980s during what really was a kind of aesthetic period for Deleuze. He was always interested in aesthetics, but in the 80s, he spent a series of years pretty much devoted exclusively to aesthetics. And he wrote these two incredibly powerful and influential books on cinema, Cinema 1 and 2. He wrote about the, the Baroque. He wrote uh, this book about painting, uh, this book about, about Francis Bacon. And it, it's an excellent book. It's not particularly long. And if you know anything about Francis Bacon, it's, it's an easy way to kind of get into his thought. And the coda here is that the book on Francis Bacon also has an excellent short, but an excellent series of observations where Deleuze defines the analog and the digital. So if you want to know Deleuze's theory of the digital, there are a couple paragraphs in here where you get a very, very clear definition of the analog and the digital. And, and he's 100% right. I mean, he knew it. He, he really knew it um, uh, in an intimate way. All right, Alexander. Thank you. This was uh, very inspiring and I think a good first episode of uh, this podcast uh, introducing seminal texts on digitization uh, to a larger public. Thank you again for coming here and um, discussing the postscript to the Control Societies by Gilles Deleuze.